All right. Good morning. Again, uh, we're so thankful that you're here with us at Seven Hills Fellowship on an Easter Sunday. And again, like we say very often, um, you know, I don't know what your motivation in being here this morning is. Um, The truth is, it's possible that some of you are here this morning and you don't even know uh, very clearly what your motivation is. What I do know is that the scriptures make it very clear that you're not here by accident, that God has drawn you into this place this morning. And so what I would tell you this morning is that God has you here for a very particular purpose. Maybe it's a conversation with somebody that you've already had. Maybe it's a conversation you will have. Maybe it's a piece of scripture you will hear. Maybe it's a song you will sing. But whatever it is, my prayer is always that no one would be able to leave this place this morning without having had an encounter with the living God. He's why we are here. Now, several weeks ago, we began a series called Road to the Resurrection, right? And so we began at the beginning of John chapter 19, and uh, we really tracked um, everything from Jesus' arrest. He was falsely accused. He was arrested. He was taken uh, to the, uh, basically to the leaders of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish Supreme Court where they trumped up charges on him. Then they took him to the Romans. And again, on false trumped up charges, they took Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said, I don't really have any reason to condemn this guy, but they sent him to the cross anyway. His very own people said, we'd rather have Barabbas free and we'd rather have Jesus go to the cross. And so they rebelled and they turned against him. Jesus was nailed to the cross, right? It was on the cross where he not only suffered physically, but more importantly, he suffered the wrath of God or the wrath that should have been for you and I poured out upon him spiritually upon that cross. He died, right? And then he was buried and he was buried and he stayed in the grave for three days. And then of course, today is the culmination, the road to the resurrection where we find our ending point this morning with, and I don't want to ruin the surprise, but Jesus rises from the dead, okay? You may not have known that. So I just spoiled it. Spoiler alert. Let's, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, thank you that you didn't leave us in darkness, that you could have. Um, you sent your son Jesus to be a light, um, to reveal to us who you are, that you're a good father, to reveal to us who we are, that we're broken and that we're rebellious and that we're sinful. We're either younger brothers or older brothers who want your stuff, but maybe don't necessarily want you. And so, Father, Jesus came um, to be who we couldn't be and to do what we couldn't do and to die in our stead uh, and to rise again, thus guaranteeing that we too would rise one day. And so, Father, um, I stand here this morning before these people and before you in the hope of the resurrection and the hope of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen. So we live in a world right now that uh, is dominated by clutter. It's dominated by stuff, right? And so there's this new movement called minimalism. Maybe you guys are familiar with it. And minimalism is where people are sort of getting rid of, you know, 85% of the stuff, and they're living in houses the sizes of shoeboxes, all sorts of stuff, right? And that's just sort of this new trend. I kind of like it, actually. And uh, so I actually was reading a blog recently called theminimalist.com. It was written by these two guys, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. And in it, they were talking about um, getting rid of some things that are no longer useful because they're irrelevant. And so I'm going to read a little section of their blog. And here's what uh, Milburn says. He says, I'm standing on a street corner in downtown Fargo, jokingly holding a payphone receiver to my ear. You guys remember payphones by any chance, right? There's an odd buzzing sound thrumming through the earpiece. It takes me a moment to realize what it is. 
Although I haven't heard from her in a, in a while, I remember her well, sedulous Ms. Dial tone, singing her monotone song each time I lifted my phone from its cradle. But that was a while ago, back when I had home phone service. These days, however, Mrs. T hardly comes around at all. Occasionally, she'll make an appearance at the office, but even there, she sings less and less each day, displaced by email and texts and data and, of course, mobile phones. Not surprisingly, no one has missed Ms. Dialtone. No petitions are being signed to bring her back. Even though she played a vital role for 130 years, she's no longer relevant, and she never will be again. So here I am, payphone in hand, listening to the droning sound of irrelevance. Likewise, there are many material items in our lives that have added value for years, clothes, kitchenware, electronics, furniture, etc., but in time, even the most useful belongings become irrelevant, after which we must let go lest we cling to irrelevance, right? Just irrelevant, irrelevant technology. Let's think for a second about some irrelevant technologies that we can sort of go back to and think from our past. I've got some pictures on the screen here. How many of you guys remember this piece of irrelevant technology, right? You used to have to stick your finger in the holes and spin it around to make it work, right? You had to do it, whatever that is, like um, four plus three plus three, six, ten times, right? And so um, Louis C.K., who's a comedian, has this joke who says, you know, when you used to have a rotary phone, you'd be mad at people that had like a, a, a nine in their number because you had to go all the way around the thing and it took forever. It would literally take like a minute and a half to dial someone's number. Nine, chick, 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 and all the way back, whatever, irrelevant. Next slide. Um, this is an early cell phone, Okay. When I was at camp, I don't remember if I was in junior high or, or if I was in high school, the coolest kid ever came to camp with his cell phone, right? You could talk on it for one minute for like $25, right? The entire four-fifths of the bottom of it was a giant like car battery, and it weighed 40 pounds, and he had to like carry it around in that box, right? Does anybody remember that? It's really kind of funny. Anyway, another piece of irrelevant technology. This is the desktop computer. When I was in college, Adam Nieder, one of my good buddies, got the, one of the original Macintosh desktop computers, and it was just amazing. Like, you know, it was fantastic. But all the memory was on these, like, floppy disks, it was, and it's just irrelevant now. You know, my, uh, my watch has more technology embedded in it now than that old computer did. Um, okay, how about some irrelevant computer games? Anybody remember this game? Pong, right? I remember getting an Atari when I was a kid. And playing Pong in the Atari and thinking that it was just the coolest thing ever. And it, this is a, the graphics didn't change. This is all it was right here. Okay? When I was, this was probably when I was, I don't know what grade, third or fourth grade. When I was a little bit older, the technology increased to this next level. This was one of my favorite video games. It was called Star Castle. Okay? Does anybody even remember this? Am I the only human in this room that remembers Star Castle? Anyone? I might be it. Oh, you remember it, Wilson? That's awesome. Sweet. And that's... Galaga, right? I almost used Galaga, but I took it off because it's actually still pretty relevant, unfortunately. I would love to play Galaga right now. But Star Castle was hilarious. Again, that's the pinnacle of the graphics right there, all right? Irrelevant technology. How about this next piece of irrelevant technology? <laughs> I don't know if you can see that guy right there. He's holding on his shoulder what would have been called a jam box or a boom box, right? There were no iPods, no iPod touches. This was before the Sony Walkman. And so if you wanted to take your music around with you, you had to carry a boom box, right? And so one of the cool ways to do it was to throw it up on your shoulder and walk around, right? That really happens, okay? Right there. And you can see his buddies right behind him going, I don't know if that's cool, if it's not cool, but that one guy's laughing at him. Anyway, so boom box. 
in the boombox, you actually had to put another piece of technology called a, a cassette tape, all right? Now, that looks huge right there, but in real life, a cassette tape was this big, and you would sort of take it and you would record songs off the radio, right? You would wait till your favorite song came on, and you'd have to press record at the same time in order to catch it. And so you would always get like, you know, some, a little bit of the DJ talking or whatever. Anyway, cassette tapes. We'll move along a little bit more. Prior to cassette tapes were eight-track tapes. Irrelevant technology. Does anybody remember the eight-track tape? I had an eight-track tape player at home in my room. I had an eight-track tape player in my car, right? I really did, literally. I had like eight, uh, eight tracks that my mom bought like at a garage sale or something. But you would plug it in, and it would go chunk, chunk. It was awesome. Anyway, I don't think, could you, anyway, whatever. Yeah, eight-track tapes. Next one, CDs, right? Irrelevant technology almost now. Look at this next piece of irrelevant technology. When's the last time you saw a hotel key? Has it been a while, right? You used to have to get an actual physical key to get in your hotel room. Now it's that little card. Next piece of irrelevant technology, the newspaper, right? Well, I love the USA Today. I still love to find one, but it's become less and less relevant. How about this next piece of irrelevant technology, the watch? You know, people carry their phones around with them now, so people don't wear watches anymore. Final piece of irrelevant technology, kids in the room. Those are called textbooks. Right, you used to actually have to put them in your book bag, and your book bag would weigh 64 pounds, and you'd carry it around school with you. Now you have a computer, like you have a Chromebook or an iPad, and all of your textbooks are magically appear on that. Okay, all this, the point is, this is all irrelevant technology. And so the reason that I'm sort of, you know, belaboring this point is to say this. In our culture, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has become largely irrelevant, okay, largely irrelevant. 20 years ago, when I was in seminary, you would you know, go to the checkout aisle at the grocery store and Newsweek and Time Magazine and Good Housekeeping would all have articles on Easter, right? They would all have articles about the resurrection of Jesus because it was very relevant in that day and age. And I guess right now, if you were to go walk through Kroger and to go through the checkout line, you wouldn't see much at Easter about Easter at all. Maybe you would see on Good Housekeeping, like how to do multicolored Easter eggs. Like that would be about as relevant as it got. But the relevance of this thing that we are here celebrating this morning called the resurrection is mostly irrelevant or it's become irrelevant in our culture. The question is, is it truly irrelevant, right? Is it really irrelevant? Did the fact that Jesus rise, whether he rose from the dead or not, does that matter? That's the question. And so let me, let me do this. Instead of just answering that question, although I think you know what my answer is, I'm gonna read John chapter 20, verses one through 18. John chapter 20, verses one through 18, starting in John chapter one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Okay, they don't know, we don't know where they put him. They've taken him, right? Not, he is risen, he is risen indeed, right? That's not what she said, right? Instead, she said, ran back to the other, other disciples proclaiming to them, someone has taken the body, right? Usually you hear this passage of scripture preached as sort of hopeful and they're excited, but the reality is that the disciples, nor Mary Magdalene, they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, right? We're gonna see that in just a few moments. Verse three, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, right? Again, they weren't expecting Jesus to have risen from the dead, right? That's not what they expected. So when they were running to the tomb, you know, as a kid, I would read this passage or I would be at church and you'd hear it, hopefully, and you'd sort of have these images of, 
you know, John and Peter running and they're jumping and they're skipping and they're happy. That's not at all why they were running. They may have been running in anger, thinking that someone had taken the body, whether it was the Jews or the Romans. They may have been running in fear that, that Jesus' body had been taken or even in disgust that someone would disturb the body of their Lord going on. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Commentators will always point out that John, this is the other disciple here, he's writing this, this, uh, this book, that John was the younger one and he was therefore faster, maybe in better shape, and so he got there first, but that Peter's personality was on display, even though he got there second, John stopped at the tomb, but Peter barged right in, right? You've heard that probably before. It says, he saw the strips of linen, that is Peter, saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen, or folded and set apart separately. And some people, right, have argued over the years, well, it was probably grave robbers that took the body of Jesus. That's probably what happened. What you need to understand is the Roman guards were set up outside the tomb, and so the Roman guards would have been executed had they allowed someone to steal the body of Jesus. They were probably there to protect it from the disciples who may have tried to take the body, right? And so it wasn't grave robbers, right? Grave robbers wouldn't have left behind the linen because linen was expensive. It was very valuable, right? And so it wasn't grave robbers because they wouldn't have left this valuable thing behind. Others have argued that the Romans or the Jews might have taken Jesus' body. But again, if you remember, the eyewitness here says the linen is folded, right? Neither the Romans nor the Jews would have taken Jesus' body out of the grave clothes, right? They wouldn't have done that. And when the Jews and Romans realized that Christians later were claiming that Jesus rose from the dead, if they had taken the body, surely they would have brought it out to dispel these rumors. Does that all make sense, right? Listen to verse eight. Verse eight says, finally, the other disciple, again, that's John in this case, who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed is what it says. Now, he believed what, right? Did he believe that Jesus had risen from the dead? No, he did not. This is not a hopeful disciple at this point. This is not Peter and John skipping their way to Jesus' empty tomb because they're excited that he's you know, been raised from the dead. Most likely, when it says he believed here, it meant that he believed Mary Magdalene was right and either the Romans or the Jewish leaders or the grave robbers had moved Jesus' body. The evidence for this is found in verse nine. It says this, they, and this is again John writing, They, meaning John, Peter, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, right? So at this point, this is not a hopeful passage of Scripture, right? This is not pastels and Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and, yay, Jesus rose from the dead. They're distraught, right? They're utterly distraught, right? Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Again, addressing her despair. Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, If you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. 
to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, I just read 18 verses of scripture. That's a lot. There are any number of things we could drill down to in here. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we wanna drill down into? And it's already the idea of relevance. Does this matter? Does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead at all, right? Did it, would it matter if he didn't rise from the dead? Could Christianity still be a valid religion and a good philosophical system, right? Would it still kind of work? Would that be relevant? Well, let me make two points, and I think these are both biblical points. And the first one is this. If Jesus didn't raise, rise from the dead, right? If he wasn't raised from the dead, then we are without hope, right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're without hope, and there's lots of evidence for this. Listen to verse, verses 10 and 11. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes. You can just imagine Peter and John, their heads sort of hanging down, sort of kicking rocks along the way, walking back to their homes. They're distraught, right? That their image of who Jesus was going to be and what he was gonna do is shattered. Verse 11, it says, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Get the image here? So Peter and John are distraught. They're, they're sort of headed home. They're done, right? Mary just stands out the t- outside the tomb. She's weeping. And of course, she's crying. The followers of Jesus had pinned all of their hopes on Jesus as the Messiah, right? He was gonna be the hero. The Bible makes it clear that they did not expect Jesus to die, much less rise from the dead. They are distraught, right? Their, their dreams are shattered of what they thought Jesus was going to do and who they thought he was gonna be. They had seen him perform miracle after miracle, and they believed that he was the Messiah who was going to overthrow the Roman rule over the Jews, right? And they had seen him do all of these things, and they thought he was gonna replace the the unjust religious structure of the Pharisees. They had placed all their hopes on Jesus, and now he was just dead and gone, right? All their hopes had died and gone with him. Of course, Mary was hopeless, Of course she was despondent. If Jesus is dead, she should be hopeless, and so should we, right? Paul addresses this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul says, right? I'm gonna read it. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, if you've lost loved ones, a grandmother, Um, a friend, a child, then all those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost, right? Be despondent, feel free to despair, have no hope because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's really no good reason to have hope. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so Paul says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he's not risen from the dead, then we're to be pitied, right? Because we have hope in, in this life, fine, well, but, but it's pitiful, really, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul goes on to say, let's eat and drink, let's party, let's become hedonists, because we're gonna die soon, and we need to take advantage of the pleasures that this world offers us while we live, because it's all that there is. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we, you and me, are without hope. We should be despondent, right? We should despair if Jesus 
hasn't risen from the dead. And all of this time you've spent going to Sunday school and Bible school and Bible studies and church, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I'm here to tell you as a pastor of Seven Hills Fellowship, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you need to go out and do something else because this is an utter and complete waste of your time. And it's definitely a waste of my time, right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're without hope, right? But what if Jesus did rise from the dead? What if it really happened? What if 2,000 years ago, Jesus really rose again from the dead after suffering the punishment for our sins and the wrath of God upon him? What if, what if he really did rise from the dead? If that's true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we should be the most hopeful people in the world, right? But thank you. If Jesus rose from the dead, we should have more hope than anyone else. Dennis Hopper, you didn't know Dennis Hopper was a uh, celeb, I mean, a theologian. Some of you don't know who he is at all because he's an older. Thank you very much, Sam. I appreciate it. But we got a picture of Dennis Hopper here. Dennis Hopper's an actor who now, I don't know, probably is in his maybe 60s, maybe even his 70s now. Dennis Hopper had a great quote where he said, in a world where the dead have returned to life, the, world, the word trouble loses much of its meaning. Let me say that one more time. In a world where the dead have returned to life, the word trouble loses much of its meaning. In other words, part of what Dennis Hopper was saying is that if Jesus rose from the dead, then trouble is a lot different to us. It looks a lot different. We all of a sudden have hope in the midst of trouble. Listen to verses 13 through 17. They say this. It says, they asked her, and this is the angels, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. I love the fact that that's, that statement by Mary is uh, somewhat nonsensical, like she's gonna go carry the 175 pound body of Jesus, but it's beautiful at the same time. Sir, or Jesus said to her, Mary, right? So she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. People don't know why it is that when Jesus uttered her name, but for some reason, when she hears her name spoken by her Lord and Savior, Jesus, she snaps out of it. And all of a sudden she sees Jesus uh, for who she has known him to be. Verse 17 says, it says, Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the Father. People read that, you're like, what does that even mean? Why would Jesus say that? The word translated, do not hold on to me, is aptu in the Greek, aptu. And what that means is don't cling to me. Don't keep on clinging to me. Don't keep on hanging on to me. In other words, what Jesus is saying to her is, we've got work to do, right? I just rose from the dead. Thanks for hugging on me. I love it, but we've got work to do. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Does that make sense? Here's the scene. So let's go back to the angels for a second, right? Can you imagine the confusion of the angels just for a second? Just think about the angels. The greatest victory that the world has ever known has just occurred. The angels have had front row seats to the drama. Their king, the prince of heaven and earth was arrested, right? Was falsely accused, was beaten, crucified. And these angels, they watched every bit of it. They watched it all. They were amazingly powerful beings, but they were without permission to help, right? It says they, they watched as Jesus hung on the cross physically in misery, but spiritually under the wrath of God as the sins of humanity were placed upon him. They may have wept as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. They may have clasped their hands over their mouths in shock as Jesus spoke the words, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. But they were also there when Jesus' heart beat for the first time in three days. And then it beat again, and then it beat again, and then it beat again, bringing color to his ashen skin and warmth to his cold flesh. They were there when his eyes fluttered open for the first time in three days. Surely they jumped and cheered and wept for joy when the word of life sat up and rubbed the death out of his eyes. Surely they cheered, right? Surely they were celebrating. The greatest victory that the world has ever known had just been accomplished. The greatest feat of human history had just occurred. Sin and death had been conquered for all of humanity, and they got to see every bit of it. So you can just imagine their confusion, um, and you can imagine their confusion is justified when with giant smiles on their faces, barely concealed, they ask Mary, weeping in despair, woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying, right? Don't you know what's just happened? She's crushed by her grief, right? She's, she is smashed by her despair. She may be um, just dying under this feeling of realizing at that moment that Jesus was a fraud, but in just a moment, of all moments in human history, she would be buoyed by hope. This is what the resurrection provides for not only her, not only the disciples, but for all of us. It always provides hope, hope in a living Savior who can be known, hope in a living Savior who intercedes for us, a living Savior who by his life, death, and resurrection conquered sin and conquered death because of the resurrection. We of all people should be hopeful in the midst of trouble, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of joy. We should have hope, right? Jaya Packer a uh, great theologian, Anglican theologian, describes to us what this hope looks like. He says this, optimism, as uh, opposed to biblical hope, optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. In other words, I hope the San Diego Chargers will make it to the playoffs. They probably won't, right? I hope Levi grows up to be seven feet tall and plays in the NBA and makes tons of money to take care of his parents when they get old. It's probably not happening, right? He goes on to say, Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. As when the Anglican burial service enters and turns the corpse in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, optimism is a wish without warrants. It's a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life, every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come, right? The best is yet to come. Just think about for a moment, if Jesus rose from the dead, people are still gonna get cancer, right? People are still gonna have diabetes. There's still gonna be trouble in this world. But if Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope. And part of our hope is that the best is yet to come, right? There's a, there's a happy ending, right? There's the final scene to the movie where you go, oh, it all becomes clear now. The best is yet to come. Listen to the words of Bono. Bono is the lead singer for U2. Uh, this is an article that he uh, gave uh, for the New York Times several years ago. And uh, he's talking about what Easter means to him, right? So here's what he says. Then comes the dying and the living that is Easter. It's a transcendent moment for me, he says, 
a rebirth I always seem to need, never more so than a few years ago when my father died. I recall the embarrassment and the relief of hot tears as I knelt in a chapel in a village in France and repented of my prodigal nature, repented for fighting my father for so many years and wasting so many opportunities to know him better. I remember the feeling of a peace that passes all understanding as a load lifted. Of all the Christian festivals, it is the Easter parade that demands the most faith, pushing you past reverence for creation, through bewilderment at an idea of a virgin birth, and into the far-fetched and far-reaching idea, a certain hope that death is not the end. Here's Bono, the lead singer of U2, one of the biggest bands of the world, the sort of a contemporary Beatles, and he says that what the resurrection ultimately means is that death is not the end, right? That it's the idea that the hope of Christian faith always proclaims that there's something more, there's something better. That's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, for we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Of course we grieve, right? We grieve when our kids get sick. You know, I watched a kid fall off this uh, set of steps at a soccer game yesterday, and he ran, he started crying, and he sort of ran towards his parents, and his mom and dad got up, and they ran over to him, and the mom got down on her knees, and she was checking his back, and the dad came over to make sure he was okay, and it was evident it was just a scratch. The dad picked the kid up in his arms and sort of just sort of held on to him to comfort him. He grieved with him. He was sad that his son had gotten hurt. We grieve at sickness and injury at broken relationships. We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. It's vastly different. It's vastly different to grieve, but at the same time, to still trust in God as a good father, to trust in his son Jesus as our savior, who is a risen Lord who conquered sin and death on our behalf. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. The hope in what? The Heidelberg Catechism on Lord's Day 17 says this. It asks a question and it gives an answer. It says, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. Death has been conquered. It's been swallowed up, says scripture, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. In other words, Jesus' righteous life, death, and resurrection because of his life, death, and resurrection become ours through faith. Second, by his power, we too are are already now resurrected to a new life. In other words, the resurrection power of God working through Jesus, the spirit working in him to raise him from the dead, that same resurrection power is at work in us, right? Randy Neighbors was here last week. If he said, that same resurrection power is at work in us. Thank you. That's what I was going for. You guys knew what I was doing. Thank you. Anyway, that's, that is amazing. If Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope. If Jesus rose from the dead, that same power is at work in us, power to overcome broken relationships, power to overcome sin eventually in our lives, right? Power to have self-control, power to repent, power to confess, power to look at our own brokenness. If Jesus rose from the dead, that same resurrection power is at work in us. We're still on the Heidelberg Catechism. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection, right? Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection, right? We've all, we've lost grandmothers, we've lost grandfathers, some of us have lost children, we've lost husbands, right? We've lost parents, all of these loved ones, these people we have lost, and yet Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of their glorious resurrection, 
of our glorious resurrection. I'm convinced I'm gonna be 6'3 when I rise on that last day, right? 5% body fat. My eyes are going to be good, right? My brain's going to be sharp. It's gonna be a glorious resurrection for me, for you, for those that we love. We, we have all people, if Jesus rose from the dead, we can actually have hope, right? We can have hope. And, absolutely, right. I thought you were gonna say something about Crystal the restaurant for a minute, but Crystal C is better. There probably will not be Crystal in heaven. All right. In short, Christ's resurrection proclaims that he overcame death and that we will share in that resurrection and that he, in the resurrection, overcame sin for us as well. This story of the resurrection, this truth of the resurrection did more than overcome death and more than overcome sin, though. Think back again to the end of this section of John chapter 20, uh, at the end of it there. Part of what Jesus says is he says to Mary, when he finally reveals himself to her, he says, go to the disciples and tell them that now my God is your God. My father is your father. Part of what Jesus' resurrection guaranteed is, is the adoption. That now this relationship between God and man, that there's nothing else that stands in the way that all of a sudden we're unified to him, we're adopted daughters and sons of God. You know, earlier today, I mentioned that we're gonna be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So again, on the tables to my right, there's bread and wine. On the tables to my left, there's bread and grape juice. But what this is, is this is a family meal. This is for people who trust in Jesus as their savior, right? And who look to their father, God, as a good, good father. And Jesus invites us to this table today based upon the life and the death of his son, Jesus. And he says, this is a family meal. If you trust in my son, Jesus, as your savior, you're welcome to come to this table. And what this table ultimately proclaims is that you are my daughter and you're my son and there's nothing you can ever do to lose that if you trust in Jesus as your savior. And so no matter how bad you've been, no matter how much absence of goodness there's been in your life, you're still part of the family and this table is for you. And so God through this table declares, you're my daughters, you're my sons, you're perfect. Sin has been conquered, right? Death has been conquered. I welcome you to the family table to eat and to drink in the body and in the blood of my son, Jesus, on your behalf, right? And so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna read the words of institution in just a moment. But before you get up and you take that bread and you rip it off and you dip it in the wine, I want you to think for a moment about what this meal means. It means you're his daughter, right? May Pierce can't do anything to not be my daughter. I mean, she can't be bad enough for me not to love her, right? She is my daughter, right? Sam Pierce can't do anything bad enough to not be my son any longer. I will love him no matter what, always, right? When you take this bread and you dip it into wine, what God is communicating to you through this meal is you're my daughter, you're my son. I love you, right? You can't out my grace. You can't out my mercy and you sure can't out the blood of Christ, right? You're clean, you're beautiful to me. You're righteous. Your righteousness is now the righteousness of my son, Jesus. You're my daughter. You're my son. Come and eat. I love you. Hear the words of institution taken from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we're gonna have uh, several elders and several of their wives standing at these various tables around the room. Um, they're not policing anything, just in case you think that's what's happening. The reason we want them to stand next to these tables is if anyone has something they need prayer for, or if anyone just simply needs to talk to somebody, these men and their wives are there to care for you, right? And to offer hope that can only be found in a resurrected Savior. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, we thank you very much for this road to the resurrection. Uh, Father, we thank you for the suffering of Jesus. And I pray that the suffering of your son and even the suffering uh, that you experienced as you watched him go through all of this, I pray that that suffering would make us that much more thankful for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Father, I pray that as we look at these elements today of bread and wine, that we would remember that this is a family meal that you're inviting us to, provided we trust in your son Jesus as our savior. Father, I pray that as we look at this bread and this wine today, that we would remember um, and that we would believe that this meal declares to us that we are not guilty, right? And the gavel falls. We are not guilty forever because all of our guilt has been removed and placed on your son, Jesus. I pray that this meal of bread and wine, Father, no matter how ugly we feel because of our rebellion and our sin and our brokenness and our insufficiencies, I pray that this meal, this bread and wine would remind us that you see us and when you look at us, we are beautiful to you. We're perfect, perfect daughters and perfect sons. Father, I pray that we would hear the gospel today in this bread and in this wine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father, I pray that um, we would indeed walk out of here today believing that one day we will behold not only your face, but the face of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you not away from you, and may he give you his peace. Amen.